And comic books are the hardest medium to write for. That if you can write for comics, you can write for anything else because it's essentially like writing a storyboard. It's like writing a film, but you stop it in the storyboard phase. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that gets into other areas of craft also because in comics, you need to be able to represent an entire scene sometimes or an entire emotion or, or what would in film be a group of shots or a group of, uh, a sequence. Let's call it a sequence. You need to be able to represent that in a single image. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Allen Schechter, and welcome to Writer's Room Pros, a podcast of conversations with TV and film professionals where we talk about not just their work, but their approach to finding, developing, and ultimately telling stories for a living. On this episode, we welcome Jordan Gorfinkel, a graphic novelist who was a former manager of the Batman franchise at DC Comics. In this episode, we're going to discuss the evolution of Batman, creating a pathway for younger writers, and why Gorf believes graphic novels are the hardest form of storytelling, and so much more. And now, Gorf. So my background is that I was the editor of Batman Comics for the better part of a decade during the 1990s. And during that period of time, I worked with an incredible team. We called ourselves the Bat Guys. And it was uh, Denny O'Neill, our sensei and fearless leader, and Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo and myself. And during that period of time, we grew the franchise from two books a month to two books a week. And wow. when we got uh, towards the end, and also mirroring that decade, or I guess paralleling, not mirroring, but paralleling that decade, interestingly enough, was the storyline that we were building. We, I don't think we set out consciously to build a storyline that was 10 years of timeline in Batman's life. But the reality is we kind of started at Batman year one. And when we got to the end of the 90s and it was clear we were about to hit the millennium, I, I was thinking, well, we ought to do something that in some way, I don't know, celebrates but reflects the 10-year anniversary of this timeline, this continuity that we have built, the storyline that we have built. And as I was reflecting on it, I was thinking, what's the biggest thing that we could do? And um, I was watching at the time Babylon 5, and I was very impressed with the way that uh, Straczynski, the creator mm -hmm. and showrunner, was building a novel for television. And I'm going to get into weeds a little bit here, but structurally, it was fascinating to me that he was doing all the things that you would do in novels. And back then, most TV was anthologized. You didn't have a continuity where you'd have a season-long arc, especially in science fiction. You think of Star Trek back then and whatever was being done, Buck Rogers, Battlestar Galactica, you know, choose your favorite. Right. And, and that was, uh, Babylon Pine was broadcast, no? As compared to cable? It, it was syndicated. It was syndicated, okay. Yeah, it was syndicated. Yeah. I don't remember the exact circumstances of Right, because it was even, about. yeah, to do that kind of like serialized storyline back then, you know, was even more shocking than, you know, to, that, right. that somebody was doing that. And he had a five-year plan. Right. He knew where the whole thing was and going. And Straczynski wrote every episode. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And, which is impressive in and of itself, yeah. I, the output. I mean, I, I've heard him interviewed. I don't think I, oh, I met him mm. once. I met him once and I just said, thank you. And I think it was in some kind of a receiving line and it's tough in those lines to focus on anybody. And I don't think it really registered what, what, his work meant to me as an inspiration and a guide. But uh, if he's watching, thank you, Joe. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and I liked that they had rising action, that a B plot would become an A plot, that uh, there were stakes, that anybody could die, anybody could be hurt, anything could happen. And the challenge, both the advantage and the challenge of doing a long-running series like Batman or any other series, is that 
ultimately the characters can't change. So there's a comfort in that, that if you tune into Batman at any place along its continuity, you're going to recognize the character. And you're going to feel a kinship to that character because it still, you still got the pointy ears and you still got the cape and the belt and the fancy toys in the cave and Alfred and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's an advantage because it's brand recognition. Uh, the disadvantage is it can get a little stale mm -hmm. because it does become cyclical. It does become the same sort of thing. I, I, I'm, uh, very, I'm, a, uh, I'm not a Trekker, but I'm very a big fan of Star Trek. And I was listening to a podcast the other day in which they said, well, they, they did uh, the, the, the second iteration, I guess the, the Silver Age of Star Trek, which was the, uh, why am I blanking out his name right now? The, the producer after uh, Roddenberry passed away, the producer who took over, Rick Berman. So the Rick Berman era, by the time they got Got to the fourth series, they were competing with themselves because they felt like, well, you know, we told that story already. We told this story already. So where do you go with it? How do you freshen it up at that point? So getting back to Batman and, and No Man's Land, um, I, uh, I conceived a story in which was building on everything that we had done so far. I mean, Gotham City had been hit hard. We had a cataclysm, which was a pandemic. We did a pandemic storyline in the 1990s, believe right. it or not. Uh, now, why would a pandemic be resonant right now? <laughs> and that was the contagion storyline. Oh, contagion. Thank you. Yes. Right. right. Cataclysm was the earthquake. Right. Cataclysm was right. the earthquake. So, right. We kept in the 90s. But cataclysm, right, but cataclysm that was the, the no man's land. That it preceded it. Oh, preceded. Yeah, it was it was the oh. inciting incident. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah, again. Right. Sorry, sorry. Right. Can we use technical terms over here? Technical, yeah, 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 sure. Or should I explain what no, I no, mean? No, 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 no. The, the, the thrust of this, because I, I really want to get actually into the storytelling of okay. Batman like throughout right. the years. So right. this is- Okay, so long story short, uh, I was set to go on vacation and uh, I'm in a uh, an observant Jew, so I keep the Sabbath, Shabbos. So from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, I shoo, night all work, mm -hmm. which means that I can think, but I'm not going to write. I'm not going to use a computer. I'm not going to um, use electricity or mm -hmm. anything like that. It's supposed to be a day of rest. Anyway, so uh, sundown comes, and I'm supposed to leave on vacation on Sunday morning. I had been married at that point for a couple of years, a year, uh, a couple of years, something like that. What year is this? Uh, this would have been 98, okay. I guess. Uh, and I always get confused. I get married in 94, 96. It must have been 94 because my daughter was born in 97 and it wasn't a year later. Okay, we'll go with 94. <laughs> Hi, Amy. <laughs> Happy anniversary. And when I sat down at the laptop at sundown, this storyline just poured out of me. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 page treatment for... Uh, Batman No Man's Land. And the idea was that after all of the tragedy that had befallen Gotham City, this I thought of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So God basically said, uh, anybody who is good, it, it is biblical like this, anybody who is good, leave the city. You got 24, 48 hours because after that, we're going to shut down the city. We're going to blow up the bridges and we're going to leave it to rot in its own hell. And at the time, when uh, and, and then, of course, Batman has to come and rescue the city, and it's going to be a year-long storyline in which the villains, and because we have terrific rogues gallery, and Batman, I don't think anybody will argue this. And if you do argue with me, you're wrong. 
<laughs> Batman has a fantastic rogues gallery of villains. And the, in the absence of Batman in the beginning of the storyline, because he was having a crisis of faith, they carved up the city into fiefdoms. So if you've ever played the board game Risk, it's kind of like that. So, you know, somebody had Kamchatka and somebody had uh, uh, Australia and somebody had uh, what are the other uh, crazy ways right. that they divide up the world in the game of Risk. And Batman had to, along with the GCPD, uh, which had its own little fiefdom, uh, had to take back the city uh, block by block, area by area. And uh, and and we uh, we built out a, uh, 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 a spreadsheet. I was going to say a Google spreadsheet, but there was no Google back then. <laughs> a spreadsheet in which we mapped the arcs of this thing and where the characters would go. And because it was uh, a wild west, all the rules were broken, all the infrastructure was gone, we could do anything with the characters. So you felt a sense of threat. And that's something that you hadn't felt, I think, in Batman in a long time. Right. And, and that was just just to chime in. So this, yeah. and that was a storyline, um, the the idea of Gotham, you know, as a island cut off, you know, and um, to the point where even the outside world is has guards posted so people can't get on or get off the island. That um, that's Dark Knight Rises. Uh, use that. Um, uh, I forget which season, but in the TV show Gotham. Yeah, the, had, the the last episode of the fourth season and the beginning of the fifth season. Although I admit I haven't seen the fifth season yet, I'm, I've been kind of saving it up. Okay, yeah. So that yeah, so they use that story. Was that was the the No Man's Land? You know, Gotham cut off used in other places. It might have been. It feels I, like it has, but I, I can tell you, I never thought it was filmable. Really? I'd never in a million years, because this thing, uh, uh, this storyline encompassed all of the Batman continuity titles, meaning the the books that were all tied together. We had ancillary books. We had the Elseworld books, which were the what-if books in the DC universe. And we had um, uh, the animated series-based books. Uh, we innovated that style that has since become so popularized in the comic book industry. What, that so, very, the ang like the very angular? Yeah, the ones that are based on the Bruce Timm artwork, basically. Okay. Um, Bruce Timm and, and company that did the marvelous Batman animated series in 90, started in 93, 94, somewhere mm -hmm. around there, I think. I'm not very good with dates. Um, and I'm sure that the, the Twitterati will correct me. So <laughs> that's what we have them for. And we were involved with that crew also. I mean, it was a, a, a very fertile time creatively and artistically. And uh, so two things when I have to get back to um, uh, the uh, that Gotham, Gotham being uh, literally torn away from the mainland United States and left to rot, left to die. And people at the time said, oh, that's that's total fantasy. That's never going to happen in real life. It's mm -hmm. really kind of hard to buy that. Don't you think it's just a little bit far out there? And then Katrina hit. And then I started getting emails from people saying, you're a prophet. Huh. It's not the kind of prophet I really like to be. I'd rather be the prophet that says, you know, we're all going to go to the promised land rather than you're all doomed. <laughs> but so, you know, I'll take, I guess I'll take whatever it is. Me is very interesting that Batman, uh, what his first appearance was 40 something, I think it was 38. But was I always I get confused with Superman. Superman. Superman was 38. Yeah, I always get confused. It could be the same that. time because that was that was no, no, Batman was later because Batman, the, the editor mm. of Superman, said, uh, you know, I give me give me a uh, another Superman, but this time make it dark, <laughs> right. Uh, and we always joked at DC, but I think it's a truism that um, Metropolis, Superman, it's very, obviously in the DC Comics lore, you have fictional series, as fictional uh, cities rather. Mm -hmm. And in Marvel, you have real cities. So Marvel characters live in New York City, but 
uh, Superman and Batman live in Metropolis and Gotham City. So we used to always joke that Metropolis is uh, New York City above 34th Street and Gotham is below 34th Street. Oh, I thought one was like one was Chicago and one was New York. That's later, later conception. Oh, uh, it's a later conception. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think actually mm. that the Flash Central City, that's more Chicago or Minneapolis oh, or Kansas City. Right. And then you had uh, Star City, which was the standard for Los Angeles, and that was Green Lantern. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's fun. It's fun to live in this. And we also, I mean, we were inventing um, even products, fictional products. So there, I, Superman was great at that. Uh, Mike Carlin uh, used to use soda cola all the time. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember some of the other products. But so there was always a real world analog a fictional analog in the DC comics or the DC universe. And I think that's a fun place to play. Right. The, um, the Batman storyline, the original one was super dark. I, I don't think yeah. there was anything prior was to something. The chemical syndicate was the title of the very first story. I think was it? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But I mean, Batman but with it, purple gloves and he's packing a gun. Yeah. And, but right. Yeah. And it goes into the whole, uh, you know, the, the art, the Batman origin story, which, which is interesting to me that, that, that as such a critical component of the Batman story, that that can be tweaked kind of at will, like, like who killed, you yeah. know, yeah, Martha and uh, right. Spoiler Thomas alert: Wayne. Was it Joe Chill, or was yeah. Joe Chill actually hired by somebody else, and mm. it was a conspiracy by the mob? Right. And yeah, yeah. And my favorite writers on Batman, Scott Snyder, comes to mind. I didn't mm -hmm. work with Scott directly, but he has a gift for finding the spaces between the established stories to build out the mythos in fascinating ways. Mm -hmm. And my highest compliment to anybody when they do something creative is. Wish I had thought of that. Right. And Scott earns that all the time. So he's just one example of a writer like that. And by the way, uh, talking about Batman and, and Batman's been around, but there have been different iterations of Batman. Mm -hmm. uh, Denny used to always say that the reason Batman is the greatest of the fictional characters, uh, it's certainly created in comics, but possibly arguably one of the top five in all of fiction. And if you want to argue with me, you're welcome to, but you'll be wrong. <laughs> Again. Yes. And and by the way, humor comes in threes. So there'll be a third time within this podcast that I will make that joke, and it'll be even funnier then. And if it hasn't been funny up to now, it'll be hilarious when I get to Just it. Just so wait for wait it. For it. Wait exactly. for it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, so he used to say that what makes Batman great is that he is endlessly adaptable, that every generation gets their Batman. And sometimes generations get more than one Batman. For example, if you look in the 2000s, you had some very interesting iterations oh, yeah. of Batman all coinciding. So you had the Nolan trilogy Batman, the Christian Bale Batman, but also on TV, you had the Brave and the Bold where Batman was kind of your big brother. And he used to do team ups, and you had, excuse me, and you had uh, a jazzy score, and and uh, it had a little bit of the Adam West flavor, but without the campiness. And I loved it, and I loved the Nolan stuff also. And these two are coexisting. I mean, they're concurrent, and there's no problem. We recognize it's Batman, and we appreciate that there can be more than one Batman. And I think that creatively is very important to the success of a brand. Uh, because you look at Star Trek, for example, just to take another example, it was very monolithic. Star Trek has to be this thing. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it folded in on itself or collapsed on itself after a good 20-year run, nothing wrong with that, but because it couldn't breathe. 
and it couldn't allow more than one different iteration. And now, but which they're doing now, right? Though. Which now, right? And you can argue the merits of of the quality of what they're doing now. Right. Um, some people love it, some people hate it. But one of the nice things is to be able to say, "Fantastic! At least they're trying something new." And uh, with Batman, with No Man's Land, for example, that was one of the things that I was hoping also. I was hoping to break everything to be able to let the next generation of writers come in and just have a fresh start that they're not beholden to anything that we would do. And when I parted amicably from DC uh, in 99, I guess it was, uh, I never looked back. Uh, I never wanted to, to, in fact, I, I stayed away for a very long time and didn't even comic comment that much publicly because I wanted to give, you know, it's like when presidents, right? When the next president comes in, the previous president, theoretically, is supposed to fade into the background and let the new guy have his shot. And uh, in my case, I wanted to let the new gals and guys have their shot. So. Right. This show is brought to you by Showrunner Industries, makers of Writers Room Pro. For more about the app and this show, make sure to check us out at writersroompro.com and follow us on Instagram at writersroompro. Now, back to the show. Which is your favorite iteration of Batman? Or do you, I mean, do you like, I mean, oh, yeah, I have these things, yeah? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was the uh, uh, Jerry Engelhart, not Jerry Engelhart, what was his name? Jerry Engelhart is my friend. Engelhart, what was his first name? Engelhart and Rogers, Marshall Rogers. Okay. It was uh, Detective Comics 472 through 479, I think it was. What years? Very brief run. Would have been late 70s, okay. I'm guessing, something like that. And uh, it's been re-released time and time again in different packaging. It was six issues. Um, and it redefined the Joker for the ages. I would argue that the Joker that we have now is because of that Joker. There was one storyline called The Laughing Fish. Mm -hmm. It was very loosely adapted for the, the first uh, Tim Burton movie. And uh, the, the artwork was just, it, 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 it gave such scope and grandeur to Batman in a way that I had never experienced the character before. And Neil Adams was great. And Carmen Infantino was wonderful. And Dick Giordano was wonderful and was one of my mentors. He always took credit for getting me into comics. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, But that, that was the period. And uh, folks, you should check that out if you've never mm -hmm. seen that storyline. But there's an interesting story behind that. Um, Englehart wrote in a vacuum. He wrote six issues and then he went on vacation to Tahiti or wherever he went. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, when Lucas and Spielberg went away to Hawaii after Star Wars was released and- uh, Came uh, up with Indiana Jones. <laughs> or was it Indiana? And they created Indiana Jones yeah, on the beach, think, right? Yeah. But the, the reason why is Lucas was so stressed out from the experience that he needed to get away from it all. He thought this film's going to be a failure and I'm doomed and it's all over. And then word started leaking. This is taking over the world by fire. And I think it was kind of the same thing with Englehart, where word started leaking out to him that your Batman is becoming the definitive Batman. It's taking the world by storm. Wow. I have to, I, I don't know that. Uh, that I'll series. get it for you. Oh, yeah? That's yeah. nice. Thanks. Thanks. I'll wait here. Go on. Okay. No, we'll do it afterwards. Um, you know, I'd love to read that. How about the, the, um, the uh, TV and cinema Batman? Batmans? Batmans? Which, which one? Kind of resonates. That my that my which one was resonates for you? Oh or? gosh, uh, Adam West. Really? Yeah. See, it's always it's funny. So 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 Adam the Adam West. So it's nineteen sixty six, yeah. right? So that Batman. Um, so I'm super young, like seven years old. Um, and the 
that's hitting my cerebral cortex at exactly the same time as Star Trek, the original series is hitting my cerebral cortex. And those things together at exactly that same time is the reason that I wanted to become a writer. So it's, I, 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 I think I've said publicly, I know I've said it publicly, like, like I, I knew I wanted to be a writer from the age of seven because you had Batman and Star Trek, you know, kind of happening at the same time. But in retrospect, and I mean, you know, obviously I've got my toys, um, well, like one of my favorites is a, um, there's a company called Tweeterhead that made a, um, a, uh, oh, what's the size? It's, it's not, it's not one sixth. It's bigger anyway, but it's, um, it's a Batman and Robin in the Batcave kind of diorama, beautifully done with the bat computer behind it. And, you know, I just love that piece because it takes me back to, ah, oh, that was sort of this inspiration. But looking back on it now, it because it was so campy, it almost feels like it was made by people who, I don't know if it, if it was they were lovingly mocking comic books or just mocking comic books. I guess uh, it depends which season also. Maybe. I, yeah. I mean, the Lorenzo Semple Jr. scripts were just works of genius. Really? And then it started, after he wasn't involved anymore, it started to become a parody of itself. Okay. But pop culture was huge at that time. Mm -hmm. And I think that they were using Batman as a way of exploring what was going on in society in a very subversive way. I think there's a lot more going on there than you think is going on there. Uh, maybe I'm reading into this a little no, bit too it's, much. No, it's something worth you know, yeah. like looking at it for that. Yeah, and, uh, I, and I saw this show in syndication. Uh -huh. So uh, when they used to say, tune in tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel to find out what happens, that seemed logical to me because the syndication was on five days a week. Right. But if you think about it, wait a minute, if this was originally run in, uh, in prime time, wasn't it a weekly show? Shouldn't it have been tuned in next it week? It was, no, two episodes exactly. a week. Exactly. However, if you watch the third season, uh -huh. Batgirl, they say tune in next week because by that time they had cut it back to one day a week. Right. The, the bloom was off the bat. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm curious now how many how many episodes they did in that first season because it was, they were airing- 50-some episodes, right? Back to back. Yeah. I know. It's kind yeah. of crazy. So they, right, their output was yeah. tremendous. They probably have as many episodes as the right. original Star Trek. Yeah, I actually want to watch that first first Adam West episode again, um, just to see like what was the tone of it. Because I remember watching the first episode of Lost in Space, right. which is also in around that Music same time. Music by Jazzy Johnny Williams. <laughs> but the um the uh that's a, the first episode of Lost in Space is super dark. Yeah. I mean I mean Dr. Smith like I, I kill somebody and throws them down a garbage chute and the, 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 you know, the, you know, the robot is shot from this like low angle and, you know, like being really right. ominous and stuff like that. Right. But then they realized that the kid in the robot mm. was the center of their show and it lightened up. Yeah. No, but not just lightened up, but then Dr. Smith just became this like, yeah, can't be, can't be silly, you know, yeah. you know, character. But, uh, but it was, it's interesting. I was wondering if that was like sort of a reflection because also, you know, mid sixties, I wonder if that's sort of like a reflection of that, of that time. And maybe, Maybe Batman was uh, an attempt to be a sort of an antidote to. There's a lot of you know a lot of uh, tension in America in the mid '60s, um, and that's why they think that that Ted Lasso currently is is so popular because with COVID and you know with you know troubles in the world, Ted Lasso is just this this positive, upbeat character. It's kind of like we need 
you know, we need to laugh again right. kind of thing. Well, it, it, gosh, there's so much to, as we say now, unpack with that. We could have a whole separate mm-hmm. hour just about that. Um, I will say also that I think the most true to the Batman mythos adaptation is the Batman animated series from the the early mid-90s. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, together, the Adam West one and the animated one are the real distillations of their eras. In uh, But look, you, you look at the Nolan stuff, and it is a response to the Bush years, the mm-hmm. President Bush years. And you look at uh, what they're doing now with the Batman, uh, and by the way, Jimmy Kimmel had a great line that really deserves a shout out here, or whoever the writer was who thought of this. He was introducing uh, Robert Pattinson, who's playing Batman, right. to come on and be a guest on the show. So he said, uh, and this next actor coming up does what every vampire does. He turns into a bat, presenting. <laughs> I. Th- this is a throwaway line? This is gold. <laughs> nice job, whoever wrote that line. Right. I'm, I'm shocked that I didn't think of that myself. There you go. See? <laughs> See there you the go. highest compliment. I wish I had thought of that myself. That's okay? right. That's right. two on that one also. We, we need a scoreboard. Uh, anyway, so yeah, like, like we were talking about uh, with the Batman Adam West show, again, zeitgeist, you're, you're, uh, you're not pulling things from the vacuum. You are a reflection of everything that's going on around you. Mm-hmm. And it would be very interesting to go back and look at that and see it in the context of the time period. My name is Saul Blinkoff. I made my career as an animator director for the Walt Disney Company, Netflix, and DreamWorks. And you are listening to the podcast, Writer's Room Pros. Full disclosure, um, as much as I enjoy many graphic novels, I don't enjoy graphic novels as much as I enjoy movies um, or long form or even television script, you know, storytelling. You know, it's, it's a little more contained. I find often like, graphic novels I guess they're almost more like novels in a way that they're I mean like answering my own question is that they they kind of take a a often like a slower approach to the storytelling hmm. you know as compared to hit the beat hit the beat hit the beat though I though it's very possible the the newer generation of graphic novels I'm thinking like something like Watchmen right you know where you know it kind of just takes its own damn time yeah kind of telling that story um, but is as a general rule, I mean, do people who work in graphic novels for, you know, for a living, do they sit around and go, oh yeah, here's how we, here's, here's graphic novel storytelling. It's in this box and here's TV storytelling and here's feature storytelling and here are the differences. I mean, there are about 17 questions to address within all of that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to remember everything. Uh, the answer is that a good story is a good story, mm-hmm. and there is a certain kind of pacing that you expect because of the kinds of entertainment that you are engaging with uh, at that particular time. Right. Also, I guess the medium. Yeah. You know, the pacing. Yeah. You know, the medium defines the pacing. Um, to some degree, yes, but there are ways of translating. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong. Oh, oh! that was the third. I burnt oh! it out. Oh! Okay. Nicely good. done. Thank you. I wish I had <laughs> thought of that. Uh, See what I did? There you go. It all comes around. Okay. okay. okay good. Where were we? <laughs> Talking about pacing. Pacing. I think that it's possible to achieve the kind of pacing uh, that you enjoy 
uh, in any medium, mm -hmm. but you have to understand what the medium, how the medium works and, and what it does best in order to be able to reach that objective, which is a 50,000 foot view answer. Let's first define some terms. A comic book is generally an anthologizer piece of an anthologized story. And it usually comes in a slim uh, or flimsy package. You know, it's the kind that has the staples on the side and the paper that's flexible. And you collect a number of comic book stories, usually a story arc, four, six, eight issues or 12 issues, as the case of Watchmen. Most people don't remember, and this is very much to the point here, that Watchmen was actually originally done in floppies and then they collected mm. it together. Um, and the reason I say that is because comic books are collected into a trade paperback collection, which means that originally they were conceived month to month by a writer who may have had a master plan or he may have been winging it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, I think this is what you're responding to instinctively, a lot of times uh, writers will pace something in a certain way not realizing that it's slow or fast because they've got a deadline to hit and they've got to get this book out and the ship's got to run on time, train's got to come into the station, and that's just the way that they did it. And if they could go back and redo it and tighten it and all of and shape it, then they would, but they don't have that opportunity. Graphic novel, however, is usually a square-bound book, or in this case, it could be digital as well, but we'll just talk about the physical medium that originated it, a square-bound book that has a beginning, a middle, and end, and is purposely shaped that way. So you have an opportunity to do with a graphic novel what you can't do with a comic book or, or mm -hmm. a trade paperback, which is to deliberately or de deliberatively create or craft a story that is going to hit the beats, just like right. you Right, you know it's going to be this. Right. Yeah, right. Right, because you can go back to the beginning. And you you can so I I don't know if you're a, a plot first or a character first type writer. I, I tend to be a plot first. Right, I, I'm very plot first also, which is dangerous because then I get so in love with my plot that I forget that oh you know what the characters are really what you're going to invest in, not the plot. Yeah, put that to the side for a second. But you can shape the plot over here, right? Yeah. So when when uh, so when I'm writing. Uh, or when I'm overseeing somebody, because editing is also writing, but it's uh, it's writing. They say you know the movie's found in the editing room, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. the comic book is found, I guess, with the editor. Maybe um, I'm giving the editor probably too much credit, but um, you're able to then uh, uh, put out you know, a bunch. I, I write a bunch of scenes, or I, a piece of dialogue hits me, and you have all the stuff all over the place, and you begin to make note cards or use Writer's Room Pro in order to structure your story properly properly, digitally, and with the advantage of being able to work with a writing partner and a staff and a writer's room and all that sort of stuff. I use it. It's great. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm joking a little bit right now, making you very uncomfortable. A little bit. But, but the truth is, especially in the pandemic era, it has enabled me and my writing partner, Lisa Klink, to work virtually as if we were in the same room when we couldn't be together for uh, in the same physical spot for, I don't know, a couple of years or so. And in a way, our productivity actually increased because of it, but I'm going off on a tangent. Interesting, we'll talk but thank about you. That later. Thank you for that. You're welcome. It's It's been amazing. Um, thank you for that. Anyway, so with a graphic novel, you're able to work the same way that I think you work when you're working on a movie, which mm -hmm. is you're kind of shaping it on all ends holistically. Whereas with a television show, you're barreling forward. You got to feed the beast. So 
many times you're writing a script in a few days from the beginning to the end, and you're hoping that your knowledge of craft and your instincts and uh, your creativity are going to shape it into something that is going to be entertaining and hit the beats and work. Same sort of thing with writing comic books, where you're writing a 22-page story in a month, and you're hoping that this thing is going to set up and, and everything that you're going to need four months from now when you're writing the, the, the conclusion of it. And there's no opportunity to go back and touch on this thing over here. So uh, Bob Gale, the um, uh, co-creator of Back to the Future, uh, whom I recruited to write the first story arc of Batman No Man's Land. So I have very strong memories. Hi, Bob. Uh, very strong memories of walking in Central Park with Bob and Bob saying, you know, I've written film, I've written movies, written TV, all the novels, whatever he's written, and comic books are the hardest medium to write for. That if you can write for comics, you can write for anything else because it's essentially like writing a storyboard. It's like writing a film, but you stop it in the storyboard phase. Mm -hmm. and uh, And that gets into other areas of craft also because in comics, you need to be able to represent an entire scene sometimes or an entire emotion or or what would in film be a group of shots or a group of uh, a sequence let's call it a sequence you need to be able to represent that in a single image so you need to find the high point of the plot and the characters and what i call the emotional arc and all this stuff that you're keeping in your head craft wise at the same time you need to be able to distill all of that into one image that's inside a box. That's our frame. But it's not that you have, how many is it? 22 frames a second, 32 frames a second? One, what is it, 24? Yeah. Okay. Time is very elastic in comics. You could spend an entire page portraying a second or portraying the lifetime of a person. I do a workshop called the Super Storytelling uh, Workshop or uh, Seminar. And what I do is I meet with folks in corporate America or any corporate setting, and I show them how to do clear, concise, and creative uh, ideation using comics. Mm -hmm. And I'm also, I do a four-panel comic strip, which is uh, a different sort of uh, craft than doing graphic novels and comic books. Right. Obviously related, but first cousin. But And I find that by enforcing the rules of doing a four panel comic strip on people who are, you know, buttoned up uh, corporate types. It's the best way to get them to drill down to distill, excuse me, to distill their ideas into the essence of what they're trying to say so that they can then build it out. Because what happens is I find and this is true of people who work in any vertical, in any industry. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a bricklayer, uh, um, a sanitation worker, um, or a, a writer. Uh, you always have a ton of ideas floating around in your head. And sometimes you got to get out of your own way. How do you get out of your own way? How do you find the essence of what you're trying to say so that it doesn't get lost in the sea of all these other fine, you know, colors? It's like uh, if it, nowadays on computers, we have an infinite rainbow of colors that we can choose from when we're coloring. Yeah, comics. 16 million colors. Right, right. It's like, well, how do, what do I do with that? Well, I'm fortunate that in the 90s, uh, I started analog. And I ended my, my uh, not ended, but, you know, segued from that into my, the next part of my career uh, with digital. 
So when I was an intern at DC Comics, which is how I began there, one of the things that I did was coloring comics. And we used to take Dr. Martin's dyes and, and photocopies of the artwork, or reduce down photocopies of the artwork. And we used to paint, literally hand paint the black and white artwork. And then we would take uh, an acetate sheet and lay it over it. And we used to label the colors according to their um, RGB or CMYK right. makeup. And so I have a great talent. It's wonderful. It kills at dinner parties where I can look at any color and tell you what color it is. Like I'm looking at your shirt right now mm -hmm. and I'm thinking that's... Um, that's uh, uh, 40%, no, probably 60% magenta, 40% blue. I'd put in 15% yellow and maybe a 10K. And th that's the color. And the only that reason- That is your superpower. That is my superpower, right. Um, how do you like that, ladies? <laughs> Hi, Amy. That's a callback to my wife. I know it was a long time ago, but there you go. Anyway, uh, and uh, in, in coloring that way, I learned how to- work with a limited palette. And that is very much, that very much can be applied to writing as well. That if you learn to write with a limited palette or create with a limited palette, you learn focus. Mm -hmm. And focus is the hardest thing for us to pull in any kind of industry. And uh, by using a limited palette of the four panels that has a specific space for the image, and a very limited number of letters or words that you can put in for the dialogue or the narration. Stanley used to say 25 words. That's what you got space for. Any more than that, you're overdoing it. So can we bring across an idea in four panels that represent the setup and the, the second stage and the third stage and the fourth stage? I won't get into the weeds on that right now. Go to superstorytelling.com <laughs> and you can learn more about it. Uh, can you then take your idea and get that essence of it? And then from there, you can build it out into whatever you want. It can be a film, it can be an audio something, it can be a right. book, a novel, an advertising campaign, and anybody can do this. Because if you can draw a stick figure and you can write words on a page and you can tell a story, you can do comics. And you see kids doing this all the time. So why do adults get so uh, you know tight and uptight about it? Uh, we have to be able to get back to the essence of that kind of storytelling. And I think that gets back to something that you were saying before. When it comes to film and television and, and how it engages you or you're more immersed in it than uh, comics, well, I think with any medium, if you have managed to find your central story first and know definitively where it's going, whether you're anthologizing it or you're writing the beginning, middle, and end all over the place, like in films, or however you're crafting it, it will succeed. Well, I had Saul Blinkoff, who's an animator, um, who I know you know, but we were talking about also that that sort of if you can write in a uh, with limitations, uh, then it's 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 incredibly difficult. We were talking in the context of uh, preschool, so you know when you're writing for preschool, there's all these the box is kind of small about where you can get your drama from. So it's, it's kind of a similar thing, right? You know, it's, it's like the equivalent of 25 words. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when I'm showing people, we use the professional tools for making comics, the same kind of non-repro blue pencil. And I have a templated board with lines that disappear when you photocopy them or scan them. And, uh, 
uh, and for the lettering, and there's a very specific craft to putting the lettering inside the balloons. They're not bubbles, folks, they're balloons. Uh, if so, there's a very specific way of doing that. You have to use all capital letters and you have to make sure you use punctuation and there's a, a way to show. The first question that always comes up is, well, what happens if more than one person is speaking at a time? And I have my instruction sheets. I anticipate that question. Here's how you do it. And there, there are ways to get it done. Um, but the paper looks like the same paper you got in first grade. Remember when you were learning how to write for the first time mm -hmm. and you had a top line for the top of the letter and a bottom line for the bottom letter and you had yeah. a dotted line in the middle for a letter like an E that has a little chick chick in the middle and it's the same thing in comics. So even you're working within a limited palette, even writing your words, literally physically writing your words. So everything about comics is taking all of the multimedia craft and distilling it to its essence. And that's why I think Bob Gale said, if you can do comics, you can do anything. Yeah, I um, I, I worked for a showrunner um, in his writer's room once who, you know, his, in a weird way, writer's room pro is a, uh, is a partially inspired from my experience in, in this writer's room um, because you would have these four by six index cards and, um, and, when you were working in the in the room, his philosophy was if you couldn't fit your thought on a single card, then you got, have to keep rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it um, until it can fit on the card, and um, and then then you know you've really thought your idea through. Which which who and he's a great showrunner. I'm not going to mention any names, but he was a great showrunner. But it, it was such a frustrating experience for me because um, I'm long winded. Number one, um, I'm not saying he's wrong, but for me personally, and also my handwriting is so bad and you're writing, yeah, I mean, you're not writing on index cards in a writer's room, you know, with a pen, you're using a Sharpie. So, you know, so there, there are people in the room who um, had beautiful handwriting and they would write these like tall, skinny letter, like A, you know, B, you know, like, you know, so, so they were, they could maximize how much they got on the card and me, I'm like, A. <laughs> you know, I was like, I couldn't do it. So it was so frustrating right, to me. You were a caveman to that. Yeah, I was like, you might as well just give me like a chisel. Model. I literally would spend 20 minutes writing and rewriting like one card. It's like, I don't even remember what I was thinking about anymore. Now it's just like, how do I get us into this little box? You know, so, um, but in a, as a general principle, the idea that structure creates um, something better than like a freewheeling approach to something. Yeah, that you're you're hitting on the most important point here, and that's why we're talking about uh, working within a limited palette mm. because it actually frees you. Uh, we we could say by working inside the box, it enables you to work outside the box because when you have infinite choices, it's it's overwhelming. Right. To even the most seasoned writer, you've got to find a way of of defining your box first. Yeah. I feel like there's so much more to talk about and I sincerely hope that you'll have me back. We can talk about birds of prey and we can talk, talk more about all the other ideas where we wish we would have said, I should have thought of that. Garf, it's a deal, man. Pleasure. Come back next week for our interview with former Disney animator, Saul Blinkoff. See you next time. Thank you.